Welcome everyone, what it is, what it was, and what it shall be. You're in for another installment of Every Black Man Has a Story here on the Black Prospector Show. And I just want to invite you to go ahead and relax and just listen to a mellow story by my Uncle Isaiah as we move into part two of a story about his childhood. Uh, we talked a lot about cars and how he ended up getting into it in the first one. And I really encourage you to go back and at least listen to the intro of part one, just so you get an idea of kind of the flow for part two. I'll just quickly say my uncle Isaiah had a stroke and we will talk about that later on in one of the episodes. And so, you know, he's a little bit, uh, some of the statements are a little bit slow as he gets the words out, but he did a fantastic job, far better than I think he anticipated that he was going to do. And, uh, you know, we ended up talking for a while and you can tell on certain topics he even got excited. So, you know, this this particular episode was really good as he goes into his childhood. And I asked you in the first episode, how long do you think sharecropping and cotton picking by people was going on in the United States? I was surprised when he told me I was blown away and I never knew that I was this close to the process in my own family. Obviously, I've known my uncle all my life. Obviously, my mother should have known. And I remember my mother talking about it. But when my uncle explained it to me, it had a whole new meaning. My mother would come here in Arizona and talk about the times of picking cotton. And I'm just thinking, you know, it was something she did in the fields of Alabama. That was just part of, you know, they out there running or on their way, taking that 10 mile hike to school. And they had to pick cotton or something that they might have done just as a side job. I never knew that this was actually their first job. And you're going to hear my uncle Isaiah really only had two jobs in his life, picking cotton and working in the automotive plant. My, how both things are related. When you look at the great migration, as it's called, that took place when so many black Americans moved from the south to the north. Well, this is my family story. Not only that, but the very process of picking cotton that goes back into American chattel slavery. Here it is. My uncle did at least a similar task, although he was paid and you're going to hear how much he was paid. So in a way, this is kind of one arm that's a tie going back into Really, when black Americans were brought here off the slave ship, when Africans were brought here off the slave ship, and we will say we became black Americans after that, as generations ended up becoming more and more distant from Africa. And then that process of working the land, then going into the late 1800s, into the 1900s of industrialization and moving into the factories and the plants that now we've even transitioned away from here today. My family has ties going back to those two transitional periods in the United States, not even just in the United States, but really globally, because this happened in other regions as well. Blew me away was phenomenal. How much cotton did he pick? Well, you're going to hear it. And certainly, why did he go back to Alabama? You would think that after his experience down there, why would he want to move back there? And, you know, he said something else that really really just hit home that I think a lot of us wonder about today. And that is, he looks back and he said, I wonder how did I make it? I think that's something that probably resonates with a lot of people. I think we all look back at our lives to a certain way and we wonder, 
how did we make it? Certainly for the Christian, they say, well, I made it because God brought me through. Maybe if you're a non-unchristian or, or non-religious person, you just made it on your own fortitude. Okay, that's your view. But one thing is for sure. I was talking to some young people recently and talking to them recently, we had some, some basically we'll just call them some real bad storms, not quite monsoons, but some considerable storms here. And these large trees fell over. And people are saying, well, if you look at the trees and it's true, if you look at the trees, the roots do not go down very deep into the soil because, well, they're always watered and you know, water <laughs> doesn't always come out here in the desert, but they're always being watered. And so the roots do not have to go down deep into the ground. And now when the troubles, when the turmoils arise, and in this case, the wind comes, it's easy to topple the big tree over. But then you think about, I think about those trees in the Midwest when we would have what sometimes felt like a tornado come through. And yeah, some trees snap, no doubt. But many, many other times, they were able to weather the storm. The roots were deep. And so now, I think that's how it applies to life. When I listen to my uncle's story, I realize how deep the roots are in his generation. How deep the roots may be even for some of us. But quite honestly, some of us may not have even gone through much. Some of the young people are coming up in a life where really tragedy for them, well, it's their Facebook account being hacked or being closed down. Their Twitter being canceled or being, being deleted somehow. It's not getting enough likes on their Instagram post or their Snapchat. It's not getting attention. It's not having someone coddle them. It's not getting a trophy because, you know, in today's sports day, everyone gets a trophy, whether you win or lose. And I really wonder how solid is the next generation? How solid is the generation that I'm even in? And I look at the roots of the previous generation, and I am definitely one to call out some of their faults. But I have to say, at least the roots from those trees, they truly run deep. That generation is resilient. And you're going to hear that today in my uncle's story. In the meantime, make sure you like and subscribe. I'm going to certainly post this up on YouTube. So check out the YouTube channel, Black Prospector, on YouTube. Like and subscribe to continue to get the updates, especially for the podcast, as well as some of the videos. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast as well. Stay up to date. We have a lot more interviews coming. I'm going to keep releasing these at least every week in portions. And then we'll probably get to the whole interview. But I like releasing them just even a little bit at a time. Not too long. I know everyone has a different schedule for when they can listen. But I want you to absorb it. I want you to kind of think about your family in between some of these interviews and some of the stories that you hear. Because these stories are tremendous. Our relatives are walking history books. So take a journey with me as we walk back with my uncle to the early 1960s on Every Black Man Has a Story. It wasn't too bad. 
we had to pick cotton, which I hated. Mm. Uh, worked on the farm. Uh, and I hated the cotton. I, uh, the other part of the farming I, lo- I loved, but the, the, the cotton is just something I hated because I used to want to, which I didn't know better at the time, but I would used to say I wished I would die and then come back after cotton picking time. That's how bad I hated it. Wow. Wow. So you were still picking cotton in the late 40s. Really, that would have been the early 50s. Yeah, I picked cotton until the early 60s. What? Yeah. Uh, at 17, I picked my last cotton because uh, I had just around, I p- probably picked it at 16 because I, uh, mom and dad left and came to Michigan, I think in October. So that uh, I was 16 in October. And so I came up there, uh, I graduated from high school and went up there at the end of, uh, well, when I was 16, I mean uh, 17. I was 17 when I come up there. Cause no. I couldn't, I couldn't get a job at no place until I reached my 18th birthday. And then uh, that's when I went out to Chrysler. Uh, my brother had got hired out there and uh, I went out there with him to uh, he went to for an interview, and I went to uh, put in an application, and they called me. That's that's what it all. Wow. Well, I know, especially in the later years, you know, I think we would associate picking cotton as something that happened in like the early 1900s after slavery. So here it was: you were picking cotton in the 60s who was this cotton being picked for was it a particular company was it a neighbor you know i we you know i've always heard about sharecropping you know who was this cotton being picked for uh, uh, my dad uh he owned it the the, the well he rented the land mm. cotton was uh that was the biggest from the what I can remember, uh, thing that they had to, to get some money was when that cotton, a bale of cotton, uh, I think it was like 1,600 pounds or something, uh, mm. make a bale. Wow. That's and, a uh, lot of cotton. Yeah. And, wow. uh, So I picked it up. 
I picked a, a lot of uh, cotton. Uh, I couldn't barely pick over. I picked it 200 pounds several times, but I didn't. I didn't get much over 200 pounds. That's because my my dad. You had to. You couldn't put all that garbage in in your sack. You had to uh, pick a clean a clean cotton. So it wasn't no uh, bowls of cotton and all you put in there. You had to pick just the the cotton out of there. Wow. So and just so I understand, you know, kind of from what I, I've heard about and read about with sharecropping, was it a case that your father rented the land from someone white? And yeah. okay, okay. And so part of he rents the land. So does the cotton go to uh, or does a portion of the cotton go to the white landowner or a no, lot no. of the portion or how did it work? He sold that cotton himself. Okay. And he gave gave that guy the rent money. Mm. Rent rent the land. Um, now, I think we own some uh, a portion with somebody else for a year. But uh, my dad, uh, we worked for him. Now. Over the years, when we got through picking our cotton, then we could go out and pick cotton for somebody else mm. and uh, get some money. But you figure $3 a day was all you could make. Mm. Dollar and a half for a half a day. Mm. But what I'm trying to say is things were cheap back then. Yeah. Uh, you could buy a, a loaf of bread for 10 cents. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I think a, a, a carton of these these knee-high pops and, and uh, RCs and Coca-Colas, you could buy them a, for a quarter. Mm. And now uh, it's, it's just it's strange how the prices have went up, but the wages down here is not up. Mm. Mm. I remember uh, going back when I left Chrysler in 1994. We had just got the contract. Uh, when I left, I was making $19 an hour. My son down here, he still don't make $19 an hour. Wow. Wow. And that's been 25 years ago. 
Wow. They're different in the wages, you know, of uh, the city and the, the and down here. Mm-hmm. But the prices is still is still go up. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. I have to keep saying wow, because that that is amazing. All of these years later, I mean, just just for kind of reference, do you remember how much you paid for, we'll say, you, any of your cars, whether it was the Shelby, the 340 Dart or Duster? Do you remember how much you paid for those cars back then? I think uh, because I bought a, a new a new Chrysler D100 bucket seats and all because they didn't uh, air condition. I think I paid five thousand something for that truck, mm. and I paid I think five thousand, almost six thousand dollars for that uh, Chrysler uh, 300. Not the not the 300, but the uh, the Chrysler, uh, what you call it? They stopped making the Imperial that year, oh. but they didn't stop making the car. Okay, okay. What was the other one? So they put the name of the Chrysler onto that car. Oh. But I owned it, both of them, I owned it two cars that same year the truck and the car new mm. and now I can't even buy a car one Chrysler mm. but what I uh, owned the truck and a car for now that's yeah. how that's how the, the price has then gone up yeah, that's, that's why I asked, because it's a great comparison to what you said about how much money you made and how much your son makes. And I thought about the price of cars because just the other day they came out and said that, and I, I guess because they're they're saying because of last year and and now the shortage with semiconductors, all these all these excuses, most of them I kind of feel they're making up. But they're saying the average price of the car is creeping up to thirty eight thousand dollars now. And a truck, I know trucks regularly, you know, I, I think probably for, a, like you said, air conditioning bucket seat. So let's let's say today that would be a truck with, you know, a nice navigation system, sunroof and maybe a de- some decent wheels or something and not even the whole Harley Davidson or something package. But that's still going to run you 50,000, if not more. So yeah. there's it, it does, especially when you look at the average salary it's not enough to even pay for one car nowadays. I mean, I know Dodge, the Ram, they have that Ram TRX. That's over $100,000. One of my friends just sent a picture of one in the showroom, and I said, you know what? And they'll be able to sell it at over $100,000, too, for a pickup truck. <laughs> That's, don't make no sense. And, and pickup trucks, they used to be the cheapest thing you could buy. Mm. Mm. That's why all the, the people down south own the pickup trucks because they they was cheap 
But well. now uh, they could do their farm work and everything, and then still go. Uh, you know, they got a new truck, but now I don't know. Uh, and they found out they could sell them. Yes. And uh, they stuck the price to them. Yes. Pickup trucks was the cheapest thing. Wow. Yeah, times have changed quite a bit. <laughs> wow. That's. Yeah, but I, the I mean, wage on here, I still say the wages down here is uh, in Alabama. I don't know because I, I haven't left Alabama but I guess twice since I left, but came back. But uh, it's ridiculous. Well, that that leads to another question. You know, after spending so long, so much time up in Michigan, why did you go back to Alabama? Especially you left at, you know, your late teens. You were a sharecropper or not sharecropper. You pick cotton. And, you know, then you come to Michigan, you work. Why didn't you stay in Michigan? Why did you go back down there? Because of the weather. <laughs> I hear you as I'm talking from Arizona right now. <laughs> because the, 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 the price of, a, I mean, uh, It didn't matter when I, I had, uh, what I'm trying to say is, I had, I was able to retire because uh, regardless of age, that was the main thing. And when they got that in the contracts, I think I was, I had got over 20 years before they ever got it in the contract, but when they got it in the contract, uh, that was news, good news, and I was determined to get out of there before I and come back to Alabama where I could for the warmness of the uh, of the climate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Getting up, going to work at. Uh, Middle zero, somewhere in the in the teens, of mm-hmm. zero, uh, that wasn't for me. <laughs> I couldn't get used to it. Even after thirty years, huh? Even after thirty years. <laughs> well, when you were picking cotton, did you get any days off? And what I mean by that, right now, the hardest part of having young people work in in businesses they want to call in not go to work and i'm going to assume that the work ethic you had picking cotton you took that to chrysler and you gave them that same dedication that's my assumption but i I guess i'll ask you when you were picking cotton were there were there days as much as you hated it you know was because i'm wondering how in the world did you even go to school how did you have a social life as well during that time? And could you, were you, and, and I know younger people may hear this, they may say, oh, well, okay, picking cotton is kind of like, to them, they may view it like uh, working on landscaping now. It's a little side job or working construction. You do it a couple of days a week, you know, just when you have some free time. How did picking cotton 
going to school and having a social life what was like what was your average day how did all of that play in well we got up when the sun well some days we got up before the sun came up but because when the sun came up we had to hit the field uh, that mean picking cotton flowering the mule all that uh and I wonder myself uh, sometime how did I make it? Mm. I'm sitting back in air condition now, and uh, we had a fan, but it was one of those. It just it was a, a ordinary fan, uh, electric fan. And uh, that wasn't too much. And the, the heat in the summertime, especially July, August, September, it was so hot out there to, I can't describe it, but it, uh, the sun, I can't describe it, how it looked. Mm. I don't know how I, today how I could have made it, but I did. But I, how I made it. Mm. But being so hot. And you had to be, uh, be out there uh, most of all day. You come home for dinner, spend an hour, for them and right back to the fields, no matter how hard it was. So I imagine that was all during the summer. So then so yeah. you hit cotton in the summer. So that way, so you had, you didn't have to worry about school then. So what, what well, did, I say is August, the cotton came in uh, last of August, hmm. August, September and a part of October. Now, we uh, missed a, a lot of weeks. The, uh, the first two or three, maybe four weeks of, uh, of school because that cotton was more important than than school was. Really? And then you went to school until uh, school was out in May all the time. So I do remember that. It got out the last part of May. Uh, the last week of May or something along there, those lines. Every year so. Then we went to the field the rest of the summer and all. Mm -hmm. But there were some fun days because uh, I used to love when it rained. Mm. That means I didn't have 
พริกนกกานนมจักกานดูนั่นว้าว so on on days let let's say if it was January February Um, what would a typical day look like? You get up and go to school. You know how how early would you have to get up? Um, how was it? Because I, I know the area that you're in. Uh, I'm assuming you had to catch the bus, although you know every parent said they had to walk 10 miles to school. But how was it during those type of months? It was, I say, fair. Uh, it was the cold winters. Here, during those times, it wasn't no, it wasn't any snow, but it, it was some cold, uh, cold winters. Uh, these later years, uh, say in the 2000s, something we have had uh, uh, some snow, mm. uh, but uh, I think I was about. If I wasn't a teenager, I was close to it uh, when I ever even seen the in the snow. Hmm. Wow. But these later years, it's been snowed down. You know, here, but not before that. Wow. Now, when when you went to school, uh, was it a, a case where? I'm always curious. Uh, were you in an all-black school? And I, yeah. I, you know, again, I know, I, I know that maybe it sounds obvious, but you know, it's, it's funny. We're, we now have generations that they don't know history anymore, so they, they make assumptions. And I, you know, I don't even want to make the wrong assumption. So, okay, you were in an all-black school, but your teachers? Did you have all-black teachers? Did you have all-black teachers? They, they hear.